So I want to bring you back to that conversation I had with my new friend Craig at the golf course. There was one point early on in our conversation and Craig chuckled and he said that one of his friends once was asked a question. They were hanging out by a fire at a house after playing some golf and this girl, they asked, what do you think about heaven or hell? Are you going to go to heaven or hell when you die? She thought for about a minute straight, he said, and then looked up and said, you know, doesn't even, doesn't really matter because I have friends in both places. And he smiled and laughed, and I just stared at him with a blank face. And I think he felt really awkward for a second. And I said, Craig, I'm sorry, I can't laugh at that. He's like, well, I'm just trying to make light of this heavy conversation. I said, I understand, Craig, but you have to understand, I actually believe that book. I actually believe heaven and hell are a real Real places, real destinies, not some place that you're going to just party in hell like the words say in songs. No, this is reality, Craig. I've given my life for this because I know that this is true. This is truth. So I can't play and I can't laugh along about heaven and hell with you, Craig. And today I've carried an impossible weight as I've been thinking about tonight and the message that I'm getting into. An impossible weight for two reasons at least. One, because I feel like a kindergartner trying to paint by numbers with my fingers Picasso's greatest mag, you know, masterpiece. Or I don't even think Picasso's stuff looks very good. But you know, you fill in the, the blank. Whatever artist actually has beautiful painting, you know? If you've ever tried to draw or paint something that looks magnificent or you actually try to draw a person and then you draw them and they look hideous, right? You're like, that's how I feel. I have this beautiful gospel, the greatest news you could ever hear and I feel like, <laughs> and, I, and I'm doing my best and I'm going to do my best to share with you, but it feels like it's all futile. And I'm not saying God's not going to use it. I'm not saying that God's not going to move, but that's, that's, that's the magnitude of the good news that I have right here. And so I feel so inadequate. One of my favorite preachers of old, Spurgeon, he says, oh, even if I had the tongue of an angel, I could not still speak of the sweetness of the gospel. And the second reason I feel so heavy is that as I was walking and praying uh, up to this hill, I stopped by the cemetery right over there. And I, I started walking among the tombstones gently and reverently. And you know what I noticed is I couldn't read almost any of them. It's a very old cemetery. The one that I could only read was 1860. It's an old cemetery. And as I was looking at these tombstones, I was just struck afresh with the reality of eternity. One life you have to live and then it's over. It's all you have. And everything I'm trying to say right now is not sensationalism. I share the story about Craig and all this because I want you to know, students, I love you. I really, really love you. I really care about you. And so everything I'm saying is coming from a place of deep compassion, not manipulation, not trying to strong arm you to believe, but, but with all my heart because more is at stake than you see. Every being, every ounce of my being is striving and, and trying to prep and go over this word again and again to make sure I'm giving you the truth and nothing but the truth. And I'm sharing in a way that is accurate and not only accurate in content but in tone. That, that I should deliver this word in a way that makes sense in light of what I'm talking about because we're talking about eternal realities. 
We're talking about insulin chews. Remember, not ice cream chews. What I'm saying is not something that I can just get wrong, like, oh, it's okay. Well, you know, you like chocolate, I like vanilla. No, why we're talking about things that if I'm wrong about this, then, then, I'm, then I'm, I'm the most person to be pitied. We're all to be pitied if we're wrong about the gospel. We're wrong about the resurrection and the historicity of what Jesus, who he is and what he's going to do. And so with that kind of stage set, I want to pray with you. And I ask you to do what I've been asking you to do and pray for yourself first. So let's start off and just pray for our own hearts. Say, God, would you speak to me through your word? And again, if you're still struggling with the truth of God and if this Bible is real, you can just say, God, if you're real, would you speak to me tonight? If I'm deceived, would you show me I'm deceived? If my heart is hard, would you soften it? I ask, Father, that you would move in my heart afresh. Help me be freshly amazed at the gospel tonight. And now I'm going to ask you, would you pray for others in this room with all your might? Because heaven and hell are on the line. Pray for others. Pray for those who are deceived, who are blind, who are hardened. Pray with all your might, students. And finally, would you pray for me, that God would empower me to speak his word in nothing but the word. So help me, God. Father, I thank you for shining light into my dead, dark heart 19 years ago today. Thank you for giving me new life. Thank you for having mercy on my punk soul, even though I was not seeking you at all. I was using and abusing you, ignoring you, and you had mercy on me, and now I get the great privilege of speaking of your mercy to these students. And so for those who don't know you, may they know you fresh tonight, for the first time ever, know your mercy. And for those who do know you, would, would all of us go to a new depth of gratitude and worship and awe? and humility as we sit under your word this evening. And Lord, I do pray against the evil one who loves to steal, kill, and destroy, who deceives and mocks and lies and twists as he is very much active trying to twist all of our minds and our hearts and brainwash us and call what is true a lie. So I pray right now in the name of Jesus against every demonic force that would come against your way. May the kingdom of God come right now. Your will be done. Your Holy Spirit move unhindered. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So we're gonna be in the Gospel of John again. Chapter 10 and 11 is a hinge part of the book where everything starts to shift. The first 10 chapters or nine chapters were talking about a lot of days, and then now in the last few chapters from 10 and on, it's going to be an abbreviation of his last days. John chapter 10, we're going to see something very beautiful. I'm going to have to sprint through John chapter 10 and 11 so that we can spend time at the very end. 
This is John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Or in other translations, abundant life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Now there are two kinds of people here. We got the thief and we got the shepherd and they both have two kinds of purposes. It's very important to know the purpose. What is the thief's purpose according to this text? Actually, um, throughout the night, whatever I preach on, unless I go to a new verse, if you could just keep that verse up. Because I want to make sure that you guys have your attention on the text. I am not the source. As John chapter 1 John the Baptist says, I am not the Savior. He's just here to point, and I'm just a pointer. Just here to point and testify of him. So I want to testify of that word as truth. So look at that chapter, that passage on the screen with me, or if you're looking in your Bible. Who is the thief? Okay, well, first of all, the thief is Satan, the adversary, the devil, the serpent. And what is his purpose according to this passage? What does Jesus say? Steal, kill, and destroy you. Think about those words. We're not talking about physical robbery because there are many rich people who are never robbed and Satan is having his way with them. We're not talking about a physical stealing nor even a physical killing. Then what are we talking about? Stealing from you life. Stealing from you truth. Stealing from you God's given purpose and identity. Killing and destroying you eternally. Just take that in for a second. According to Jesus, who's the most trustworthy person in the world, you and I have an enemy whose sole purpose, not just a side hobby, not just something that he squeezes in when he has time, but his sole purpose on the earth right now is to put all of his energies, rally all of his allies in order to take you down or in order to steal, kill, and destroy your life. Let that sink in for a second. He's using all of his wisdom, all of his years, because he's a created being as well, in order to destroy you. He's smarter than you. He's been alive longer than you, and he's after you. And I don't think most people realize that, let alone Christians, even who know their Bibles, because if we truly believe that, we would live differently. And yet so many Christians seem so confused and perplexed when they have attacks upon their life. Satan partners with sin to sabotage us so we should be way more suspicious and wary of sin than we are we call sin a friend when it's a enemy think about that satan as we learned in our last passage this morning is that his language is lying and deceit so that's the opposite of the truth And so who should have the most vested interest to deceive you? Just whisper in your ear, what that pastor is saying up there is not true. He's not after your good. He doesn't know what you've been through. The serpent is at work trying to sabotage truth. He's not after your body. He's after your heart, your mind, what you believe to be true about reality. Now, as intimidating and terrifying as that person I just highlighted is, there's someone who's greater in this passage. Who is the other person? He's the good shepherd. And what's his purpose? Look at the passage. 
Well, no, that's how he's going to accomplish it. But what's his purpose? To give a rich and satisfying life. I have come that they may have life and life abundantly. Look, look at the comparison, the contrast between the good shepherd and Satan. You have the good shepherd who exists for your good. He exists for your good. And the Satan, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, the serpents who exists to steal, kill, and destroy you. How does the good shepherd bring about life? What does he do? Sacrifices his life for the sheep. Think about how crazy opposite. One's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy your life. The other purpose is giving up his life so you can have life. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Who is like this man? Who is like that? Giving up his life so that you can have life. But it's important for us to understand how does Jesus actually give up his life, sacrifice his life? Because for many, we kind of grow up thinking that, you know, Jesus was maybe cornered and he was betrayed and he was betrayed. But we kind of think that he was just helpless, cosmic victim. Some, some, some uh, so-called pastors will even say that this is divine child abuse and that poor old Jesus is, is being bullied and abused by his heavenly father. And so how could you believe such a thing? But I want you to hear the words of Jesus himself. What does he say? John chapter 10, verse 17. The father loves me because I sacrifice my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. This isn't some boy being pushed into doing something he doesn't want. This is the son, the co-creator, the one who's always existed, who's saying, I want to do this, father. I want to do this. It's all part of the plan. Jesus never is caught off guard. He knows from the beginning who's going to betray him. He knows what's going to unfold. It's all voluntary. voluntary. Even when he's standing before Pilate and Pilate is saying, hey, you know I have power to let you go or not. Come on, bro. Help me out. I'm trying to help you out and get you out. And Jesus is like, bro, you got no power over me. This is all according to my plan. You have only the authority that has been entrusted to you by my, my father. And as the narrative progresses, we will see Jesus in complete control, even when it looks like the enemy has got the upper hand. Now let's move quickly to chapter 11. There's a famous story about Lazarus. Jesus' beloved friend gets sick. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha, very dear sisters and friends of Jesus. And um, Lazarus is very sick. And for a lot of different reasons, we won't get into Jesus delays his coming for a few days. And by the time Jesus gets to him, he's dead. This is the seventh sign in the Gospel of John that testifies of Jesus' deity, that he is the I am. See, the question that you should be asking if you're reading the Bible carefully is that Jesus has turned water into wine, he's healed the sick, he's healed the, healed, healed the blind, the paralytic, he, he has shown power over nature, but then the big question is, does he have power over life and death? 
There are magicians who can do certain miracles under a satanic power, but can you bring life from death? He's been saying to come to him is life and that those who don't will die in their sins. Is this all talk? How can Jesus show that he actually has authority over life and death than to actually bring someone from the dead? So four days later, Lazarus is in the grave and Jesus walks into a very heart-wrenching scene with Lazarus' sisters weeping and struggling with the reality of his death, coping with the fact that Jesus, if he came earlier, he could have maybe healed him. And then there's a large group of people mourning his life and, and his, his body is in this tomb with a, with a rock rolled over and Jesus sees all of this suffering and mourning and he takes it all in and what does Jesus do? He weeps. He weeps. Jesus wept. The God-man, the God who knows all things, the one who knows what he's about to do, weeps. This is a complicated reality to try to comprehend that this God, though he is all-powerful and all-knowing, he's able to enter into our pain like no one else can. If you feel alone in your pain, know that this is a God that can enter your pain. He knows your pain. In fact, the book of Hebrews teaches us that he has been tempted in every way and without sin, so he is a high priest who's able to sympathize with you. And so if you're like, oh, God could never understand what I've gone through, no, he does. He's experienced the fullness of all of life. He's been tempted to the max. He's experienced poverty, experienced suffering, rejection, loneliness, hunger, hurt, everything. He can sympathize with you. And this Jesus comes into the situation and he takes it all in and he weeps. And this word weep in the Greek, do you know what it means? Weep. Not some manly tear that you kind of hide. Yeah, I'm not crying. Weeping. Weeping, why? Because of the grief of death, the sting of death, the pain of his friends, the loss of it all, the result of the fall, and also their unbelief that they can't even trust him to this day at this point that he can make all things right. I think both are re happening at this point. So Jesus has this conversation with one of Lazarus' sisters, and he says in verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Jesus makes a huge claim. If you believe in Jesus, you will never die. Resurrection is promised, not just for some, but for all of God's people. But it's one thing to say it, it's another thing to show it. So let's see what Jesus shows and demonstrates in his power. Verse 38, it's gonna be on the screen. Let's read it out loud because it's just such a beautiful story. Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb. Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory? Lazarus come out and the dead man came out his hands and feet bound in grave clothes his face wrapped in a headcloth Jesus told them unwrap him and let him go 
Jesus does not struggle in prayer for days. He does not do some rain dance or do some sort of hokey pokey. He just merely commands with the words of his mouth and life comes. Who does that sound like? God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth with just a word. Life. That's what creators do. Jesus has power over life and death. Jesus regenerates his body, a body that surely was decaying and decrepit, and he brings it to life. Now let's see what the Jews do in response. Verse 45 Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. Remember again, belief is not wishing. They're believing as they see, as they experience, as they read, as they see prophecies fulfilled. Believing is not just wishful thinking and blind faith. That's not biblical. They believed in Jesus when they saw this happen, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. What do you think the Pharisees will do after they hear about this undisputable, undeniable evidence of Jesus' lordship, his messiahship, of its divinity? Worship, obey, follow him, repent of their hypocritical, abusive ways. Look at verse 53. So, from that time on, the Jewish leaders begin to plot Jesus' death. <laughs> they don't deny that Jesus is doing miracles. In fact, other accounts in the Gospel of John will show you that they know that these are genuine miracles. But instead of worshiping and following him, they want to do what? Kill him. Why? Well, we see in several passages, but I want to highlight one. John chapter 12, verse 43. Would you read this out loud with me? For they loved human praise more than the praise of God. Who here is not guilty of that? You know, we villainize the Jews and the Pharisees of that day, but when I read the text with an open heart and an open mind, I see myself in them in many ways. They love the human praise more than the praise of God. They fell in love with working for God, doing stuff for God, than actually God himself. They love the temple and the ritual and all the different things that they got to do for God. And in doing so, they forgot God. There's a challenge for you staffers here, you leaders here. Don't forget why you're doing what you're doing. It's because we love him. That's why we're here. That's why you give up a whole summer or a whole life for years. Because we love him. Don't forget him and doing your work for him. Pastors, you can do that too. They're afraid of losing their position, their precious temple. They're afraid of the retribution of the Romans. They don't want to lose their power and their prestige. Consider this. They have the God of the universe right there, the one that they've been supposedly longing for and reading about since they're little kids, the Messiah they've been longing for, and yet they love their position more than they love God himself. See, this is why my definition of sin last session included valuing other things more than God. Rather than just doing bad things, you can take good things like serving God and doing religious activity and actually end up loving that and valuing that over God. That's why my definition was a little bit more broad than just saying doing something that violated God's holy standards. Because at the end of the day, the heart is what God is after. Out of the overflow of the heart comes our actions 
But what do you do when your love is threatened, when your idol is threatened, when you have something that you value more than God, what do you do when it's threatened? Well, you either do two things. You either submit it to God humbly. God, you are more valuable than that relationship or that opportunity or that addiction or that sin. You either humbly give it to God or you fight for that idol. You fight for it and then you begin to grow in a hatred towards anybody or anything that would dare touch that idol. One of the most painful things that I have to endure regularly as a pastor is as I walk with precious church members who have fallen in love with the world, fallen in love with some idol, and I'm just trying to help them. Sister, brother, that is killing you. You are idolizing that and what happens? It's like if you watch the Lord of the Rings or read the books, it's like Smeagol comes out of nowhere or Gollum. It's my precious, and when you touch my precious, I will destroy you. I have had people in my church try to take me down because I touched their precious. They love their glory. They love the thing. They love the relationship more than they love God, and when you touch that thing, they will go after you. See, if you actually understand the claims of Christ, like the Jews here, they understood what Jesus was saying for the most part. They just didn't know his preciousness. When you understand these claims, you cannot be neutral towards God. You either love him or hate him. When I speak with students, often I prefer speaking to you when you have animosity towards God because then you actually kind of know what he's saying and calling you to do. Then the kids here who are just oblivious. I have great compassion and I'm concerned for you here who don't realize what Jesus is calling you and what he's requiring from you. So where are you in this, camper? Staff member, pastor, leader? Do you get that Jesus is calling you to give up your throne, your control, your purpose, your identity for his? Every single thing is on the table. Jesus doesn't call you to hold back at all. As many preachers have said many times over and over again, Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. It's all or nothing is the call for Christ. And if you really grasp that and you love your idol more than Christ, you will hate God. You will hate him because how dare he ask you to give up what you love, what you think gives you life. But the beautiful reality is if you see his worth, you see his value, then all that he asks of you is like trash to give up to him. It's Philippians chapter 3. Paul has seen the worth of Jesus, the value, the preciousness of Christ, so that everything God asks from, he says, it's all like scubalon is the Greek, it's all like poop. Everything that I valued and I found identity and purpose and esteem in, all of it is trash compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And that is my prayer for you is that as I continue to open up God's word and, and this week continues on is that you see the preciousness and the treasure that Christ is. So that even though he's asking you to give up hard things, you say, Jesus is better. Jesus is more worthy, more valuable than that thing that I love. Tomorrow's session, we're gonna spend more time in John chapter 14 through 17. So we're gonna jump to John chapter 18. Let's look at the betrayal in the garden. So Judas, one of Jesus' best friends, 
gives a way where they would meet late at night because the text says Jesus, that Judas loved money. He was a lover of money. He valued money more than Jesus. Please know that there's no neutrality towards Jesus. When you say no to Jesus, you are choosing something or someone over him. So it's a sizable crowd. Gospel John talks about a cohort, which is several hundred people. So don't think like just five people, but think about a, role, a whole like entourage of people, maybe over a hundred people just rolling up to Jesus while he's praying with his disciples. So maybe you know how the scene goes, but verse four, Jesus fully realizing, realized all that was going to happen to him. So he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am, Jesus said. In the Greek, it just says, ego in me. I am, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. This is the final I am statement that we see in the Gospel of John. Remember, it's repeated throughout seven times. His identity, I am, I am, I am. Jesus, un you cannot miss his points that he's saying, I am Yahweh. Jesus declares his identity. He doesn't cower. He's not saying, I am, you know, I have to do this. I am. He knows who he is. He knows who his father is. He declares his identity, his name, and what happens as a result of encountering face-to-face the God of all creation, the God who created and fashioned these men who are trying to betray and arrest him. What happens in that moment? John 18, 6. And Jesus said, I am they all drew back and fell to the ground just with his word. Who is this man? He says his name and the entire crowd falls back on their butts just with the revelation of who he is. Do you know a God like this? A Jesus this powerful? A Jesus this courageous? You would think that that would wake them up you would, you would think that they'd get up and be like, what are we doing, guys? Who is this guy? But when you want something so bad, you will harden your heart and push through. It's the amazing, it's amazing the amount of self-justification and self-deceit that you can fall into when you want to get what you really want. Listen, I'm going to say a statement. I'm going to say it a couple times throughout this message because I feel like it's prophetic and some of you need to hear this. The mind justifies what the heart wants. The mind justifies what the heart wants. So if the heart wants something that's forbidden, evil, wrong, the mind will go through mental gymnastics to make it work and justify to fulfill the heart's desire. Some of you are in relationships that you know you have no business in being in right now and where you're at in your life. God loves relationships. He is a relationship. He's the author of relationships. He delights in it. And yet some of you are not in the place yet to be in the kind of relationship you are in and the things you're doing with that person. And yet you know it, but your heart wants what it wants. As one famous producer said when he was in a relationship with someone like 30, 40 years old, younger than him. The heart wants what it wants. And when your heart wants something, the mind goes and makes ways to make it happen. God, God's a God of love, right? He's into love. We're loving each other. I remember doing premarital counseling with one guy and he's starting to have sex with this girl before they're married. 
He's like, I, I feel like I'm loving her. I'm loving her with this. The mind justifies what the heart desires. Some of you have twisted God's word and his ways. You have taken this book and made it a salad bar and picked, oh, don't like cherry tomatoes. Oop, like that. Croutons, yeah. You get what you want because you want to make God one that will justify all that your heart desires. And let me tell you this, like I've said it many times, you need a God that is going to challenge your heart's desires. You need a God that's bigger than you. God that doesn't just exist at your beck and call just to live to affirm you, but a God that calls you up to more, that calls you to change, calls you into light out, out of darkness. So back to the narrative. After a sham trial on the most innocent man who ever lived, the Jews condemn Jesus and bring him to the Romans because they don't have the power at this time to execute people without the power of the governor. So Jesus goes back and forth talking with the governor. Pilate, verse 37. Would you read this with me? Pilate said, so you are a king. Are you a lover of truth? Seeker of truth? You love truth? If you love the truth, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus, the truth, is saying you will recognize what he is saying is true. Now I want to switch to the ESV to hear Pilate's response. Just to let you know, translations, most of them are really good. I use the NLT when I preach to you guys because it's a little bit more readable and more accessible and gives me a little space not to have to explain some words, but I use like every translation. So just want you guys to know why I go back and forth. And sometimes I go to the ESV because it can represent the Greek here a little bit better than the NLT. But sometimes the NLT does better. So that's just my little side note about translations. Whatever translation, do you want to know the translation you should use? The one you're going to read, okay? Use that one you're going to read. Most of them are good. Um, only a few are bad. So um, verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is not a, Jesus, what is truth? No, it's a, what is truth? Like anyone can know what truth is. Why are you talking to me about truth? You're on trial, bud. Don't talk to me about truth. I am the truth. I'm the law, Jesus. That's what Pilate's probably thinking. But what does Pilate say that's so remarkable here? He says at the very end of verse 38, I find no guilt in him you're going to see some form of that statement, that sentiment over and over again throughout the gospel of John in this narrative. Guiltless, no guilt, six times. No guilt, no guilt, no guilt, which is a really important point to keep in mind. Verse 39, but you have a custom of asking me to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release this king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, no, not this man. We want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. We're going to get back to this later. So just put a pin on that. Just put a pin. Chapter 19. Then Pilate had Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. Soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put a purple robe on him. Hail, king of the Jews, they mocked as they slapped him across the face. 
There's so much here, but I, I'm going to keep going and let the scripture speak for itself. Verse 4, Pilate went outside again and said to the people, I'm going to bring him out to you now, but understand clearly that I find him not guilty. Then Jesus said, Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said, look, here's the man. I've heard some people speculate that the reason why he's saying here's the man, he's trying to make sure they know that this is actually Jesus, because if he actually went through the normal Roman torture system with a cat of nine tails and scourging his body and ripping chunks of flesh off his body, he would be an unrecognizable mess of humanity. Behold the man. Verse six, when they saw him, they had compassion. No, when they saw him, the leading priests and temple guards began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate said. I find him not guilty. The Jewish leaders replied, by our law, he ought to die because he called himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was more frightened than ever. Pilate probably heard the stories about Jesus. Stories have been swelling and circulating for years about his miracles. Maybe he heard about Lazarus, and now he's hearing that Jesus is the son of God. And yet, Pilate, the worm that he is, the coward that he is. And if you know history, he was on his, on thin ice. He already made some mistakes and he was on thin ice. Pilate loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. So they take Jesus to be crucified. We don't have time to get into the gruesome details of crucifixion, but I encourage you to look into that one time or talk to your leaders and others to learn about it. But we get the word excruciating from crucifixion. So let me ask you nicely, don't you ever use the word excruciating. I stubbed my toe. I'm in excruciating pain, mom. Mm, you know, don't use that word in that way. We're talking about the most slow, humiliating death. It, essentially, the Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they, they, um, they advanced it. They improved it. And basically what crucifixion, cruci crucifixion is, is... How do we inflict the most slow, humiliating, terrible, excruciating kind of death upon a person as long as we can? That's crucifixion. Crucifixion is basically slowly suffocating the person to death because their arms are dislocated as they get dropped into the hole where the pole, pole is. And so the only way he can get a breath from that position is to use his legs. And that's why they break their legs, eventually kill them, because then they can't lift up, but then, then push up to get a breath. Rub, rubbing your raw, ripped up back on that wooden splintered beam. Jesus slowly suffocates to death. After hours of suffering, we get to verse 28. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. I'm not going to get into the details of why this is happening. But then verse 30, when Jesus had tasted it, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. What is? His suffering? Yes, but more than that. His mission is finished. What, why is he here? Let's go back to John chapter 1 briefly. 1.29 if you're taking notes. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, or behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb of God. We don't have time to go into the Old Testament sacrificial system to understand the significance of using the word Lamb of God or understanding the Passover or the spotless nature of the sacrifice. But Paul, but John the Baptist is calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But what does that mean to take away the sins? Why do you need to take away sins? Let's go back to the pin that we put up in the air a moment ago with Jesus and Barabbas. Back to John 18, 39. Let's look at the text again on the screen. But you have a custom of me, this is Pilate speaking, to release one prisoner each year at Passover. Would you like me to release the king of the Jews? But they shouted back, no, not this man, we want Barabbas. Barabbas was a revolutionary. Who is Barabbas? Well, you, to understand who Barabbas is, you actually have to look at all the different gospels. But according to all the gospels, if you put it all together, he was an insurrectionist. He was a revolutionary. So he's not just some common, common crook but he's one who's trying to raise up a revolution. And in part of that revolution, before he got caught, he murdered a person. And also, one of the Gospels teach us that he was a thief. So here's a guy who's a murderer and a thief. And he's condemned, he's a condemned criminal. He's caught by the authorities. So, what did Paul, Pilate say multiple times about Jesus? That he is without what? Guilt. So, Pilate, the worm that he is, but still showing some sort of deference and humanity in him, is trying to maybe get Jesus off the hook. So let me raise to you, because I, I, I don't believe that there's only two prisoners in all of Jerusalem. I think that Pilate maybe is going to put on the stand the most ridiculous, most horrific, the most easily softball kind of criminal and contrast him with Jesus and say, who are you going to pick? Who are you going to pick? You're going to pick the guy who's a condemned murderer, a thief, a revolutionary, and that's all the only things that we know from the text. We don't know about his past. We don't know all the things he's ever thought or done in secret. So Pilate's thinking, I'm going to get Jesus off. He's guiltless. And who do the Jews want? Jesus, the king, the innocent one, the one who's only done good, the one who raised the dead, the one who goes out of his way to the pool of Siloam and brings life and healing to a paralyzed man of 30 plus years, the man who heals the blind, the man who cares for women who are outcasts and cares about a Samaritan woman and goes out of his way for her, this innocent, good man, the greatest man who ever lived, the kindest man who ever lived, the most precious, the most gracious, the most gentle, the most loving man who ever lived, would you want him to be set free or the murderer? And what do they say? Give us Barabbas. So the man that deserves to be on death row, they want free. And the man that only deserves love and life, they want to kill. Listen. The mind justifies what the heart wants, and their heart wants. They want blood. They're after the blood of Jesus. They want him dead. So they're doing all kinds of crazy to justify their desires. In fact, later on in verse 15 of chapter 19, they say, away with him. They yelled, away with him, crucify him. What? Crucify your king? Pilate's trying to reason with this mob. They respond, we have no king but Caesar. Do you know the Jews hated Caesar? They hated the Romans. It was, they, were, they were invaded by the Romans. They were under their occupation. But remember, 
The heart justifies what the mind, the mind justifies what the heart wants. They're doing all kinds of hypocritical activity, trying to make this work for them, pushing it through. Have you ever done that before? You want to do something, you know it's wrong, and you put your head down and push through to make it happen. You say all kinds of idiocy and do all kinds of dumb things to make it happen. So back to Barabbas. What the Jews didn't understand is that this was all part of the plan. Barabbas is a living example of what God is doing for all of us here who trust Jesus. What does Barabbas deserve? Death. What does Jesus deserve? Life. So God will treat Jesus like he is Barabbas so that he can treat Barabbas like he's Jesus. This is this great substitution, this great exchange. In other words, on the cross, Jesus is treated like all he ever did was bad things. So consider that. The mind boggles at all the implications. The most innocent but beautiful, loving man is on the cross treated like all he ever did was bad. So anything you've ever done that you regret, anything you've ever done that you're ashamed of, that you want to hide, that you feel terrible about, Jesus is on the cross treated as if he did every one of those things that you and I have done. Every shameful act, every secret. You and I are like Barabbas. That's hard for me to say because I realize it's hard for us to believe. One of the biggest challenges as I preach the gospel these days is that the average person doesn't feel like they need mercy. The average person doesn't have shame anymore or guilt. And I don't want to project any guilt or shame upon you. But there are certain actions and certain attitudes that are worthy of guilt. And yet we're in a culture that has no conscience anymore only selectively in some things that they care about. Our hearts and our consciences have been seared. And one of the great challenges I have as a preacher is without manipulating you, trying to communicate how much we deserve punishment, how bad we truly are apart from the grace of God. It is something that I struggle to explain. Every single here, person here has valued other people or things over God. Without exception, we don't deserve God's love, contrary to the message of the world. We don't deserve mercy. If mercy and grace are deserved, then they're not mercy and grace. Everyone here is a sinner. Let's consider sin once more. Let me give you the two-page definition I mentioned this morning, because I think it, it is just so beautiful. It's probably not on the screen, and that's okay. Just hear this out. Oh, it is. What is sin? If you want to understand the graveness of our sin, your sin, my sin, and remember, my sin too, guys. I am in the same boat as you. I said this on day one. I am not here on this stage standing as one who is better than you, but one who is under this word with you, and one who's had his life transformed by the gospel, and I want to share that with you. I think this gets at the heart of sin even more than my definition, but it's two pages. What is sin? It's the glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. 
the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God, wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the power of God not loved, that is sin. And if you were to be honest with yourself and look at some of those descriptions, all of us here are guilty of every one of those transgressions. Every one of us have not cherished the grace of God as we ought, have not worshiped God or obeyed God as we ought. Our sin is just, is, isn't just bad for our lives, which is true. It is bad for our lives. It does wreck our lives. It does put us in dungeons of darkness. But sin is an offense to God and deserving of wrath. Let me explain that for a second. Look at John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is so central for you to understand that Jesus does not just die to make your life better or heal your pain or shame, he does all that and more, but the most central reason he dies for you is that without a Savior, you are dead in your sins and the wrath of God is upon you. That you and I deserve to be on a cross or some sort of figurative cross because of our treason against the king. Whoa, Sam, wrath? Really? That's so barbaric, so archaic, so primitive. And I understand this, guys, that many of us have had parents who we've experienced their wrath. And sometimes, or maybe many times, it's cruel, it's uncontrolled, it's disproportionate, it's messed up. And if you've experienced parents who thrash you with their wrath, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know what that's like. But let me tell you something. The wrath of God is not like your parents' wrath. The wrath of God is always perfectly just, always perfectly measured. Not quick, slow, building, patiently. Sometimes generations, mercy after mercy. Wrath is never out of proportion, always fits the crime. It's never out of control. It's never done without thought or compulsively. It's perfect and just. And listen, when you reject Jesus as king, you are declaring your opposition to his kingdom and reign. That's why Jesus says such hard words, like either you're for me or against me. You either love me or hate me, because if you truly understand the claims of Christ, you are saying, if you reject him, that you are your own king. You are your own God. You're gonna self identify what is true, what is good, what is evil, what your purpose, what your identity is. You're rejecting the righteous, loving, wise rule of your creator and, and asserting your own sovereignty, your own kingdom when you reject Christ. There is no other alternative. There is no Canada. There is no Sweden or neutral country that just can stand along the lines. You're either for this king in all of his glory or you're against this king. We need a savior. But the good news that I mentioned already is that Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross so you and I didn't have to suffer it. So we don't have to suffer under it. But why does Jesus willingly suffer the wrath of God? If you accept the premise that mercy is not deserved or mercy is not required, neither is grace, then why would God do such a thing? If he's a just God, why would he let us off the hook? Well, 
the most famous verse in the world. John 3, 16. For this is how God loved the world, which is probably the more accurate translation. When you see this verse said, God so loved the world, the word so is not emphatic as if intensifying. He loved you so much. He does love you so much, but what the so word means in the Greek, utos, hutos, is means this is how he demonstrates his love. Because something you have to understand is that the love of God is not just some ooey gooey, gushy thing you feel. The love of God puts on flesh. It puts action. He doesn't just say, I love you, but be warm and fed and I hope you have a good life. I love you and then I'm gonna do something physical about it. And so what is this love of God? It is demonstrated by him giving his one and only son so that purpose, everyone, everyone without distinction who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Why does God do this? Because he loves the world. He loves you, camper. And if there's a serpent whispering in your ear saying he does not, love you. Not you. Maybe them, but not you. That is a lie. The word is truth. Remember, God is a creator. He defines reality. He created, give us his word. His word defines what is true. And this word tells you, tells me that he loves you. He loves you so much that he dies for you. He sends his only son who voluntarily dies and suffers the wrath of God and pays the penalty you and I could never pay unless we wanted to die. And Jesus doesn't do it. Remember John chapter one, the light shines in the darkness. He comes to us in the darkness. He doesn't just stand back and say, oh, you come to me when you get your act together. You come to me when you have all your questions answered. You come to me when you're cleaned up. You come to me when you break that addiction. No, 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 he enters into our darkness. And that's why the beautiful truth of Romans chapter five, verse eight, God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were what? Still sinners. Not when you got things together. Listen, if you wait till you get things together, you'll never be able to come to him. You can come to him dirty as you are, shameful as you are, with a dirty past, just like I did 19 years ago. You can come to him right now. And let me tell you the beauty and the power of being forgiven. I remember that day when I walked out of that auditorium. I felt like a giant weight was lifted off of my back and I could finally breathe. And I didn't know I felt that. It, 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 I remember walking out, and I'm like, I can breathe. I didn't know I couldn't breathe. I was under the weight and the victimhood of sin, the prison of sin for so long, I didn't know what it felt like to be free. And I remember feeling that come off, and I'm like, oh. And I had this thought that went to my mind, so this is what it means to live. And, I, I, and I'm, I'm being honest with you with all my heart, colors looked brighter to me. I looked around and it felt like the world was brand new. I was born again. My sins were forgiven me. And I thought this thought, I kid you not, so you're the one I've been searching for my whole life. You know? And that happened for me 19 years ago and God still does that today. And so if you are in this room and you feel like I am a mess, I have no hope, there is hope. And his name is Jesus. You deserve wrath. I deserve wrath. But Jesus steps in to take the wrath for us. Absorb our punishment. So at the end of it, there's nothing left. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath at the end. It's empty. There's nothing left except for forgiveness, favor, and his blessing. This is what's called the great exchange. 
so that because of Jesus absorbing your punishment, he can now treat you like all you ever did was good. He treats you as righteous as if you lived the good life that Jesus lived. So what will you do about this Jesus? Will you receive him as absolute Lord and Savior of your life, or will you choose to oppose him? There is no other alternative. Who will you, what will you decide, student? Here's the great opportunity we have tonight. A lot of you guys know we do this at Hume. It's a great opportunity. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus publicly, declared that he is Lord, tonight's a great night to do it. We're going to have a chance for you to do it. So there's two categories of people I'm talking to. So the first category is maybe you've never put your trust in Jesus publicly. You've never put your hope in Jesus. You've never repented from your control, your, live, your, your lordship, and you want to hand it over to Jesus publicly and declare him as Lord and receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him. That's the first category. And the second category is for the churchgoer. Maybe you grew up your whole life in church. Maybe you know the Bible verses. You know some of the things I've been talking about you, but you know, as we've been talking, that in the heart of your hearts, you are fraud. You don't know Jesus as Lord. You are still Lord. You're just a cultural Christian. You've never bowed in your heart. Though your body may bow, your hands may raise, your heart is still proud. And the second category is someone who needs to declare that Jesus is Lord for the real this time. There's two people I'm talking about. Now, there's some of you here who love Jesus and you've struggled this last year. I'm not talking about you because we all sin, we all struggle. I'm talking about people that if you zoom out in your life, you can look and say, characteristically, you've lived your life for yourself, not for Jesus. So hopefully those categories are clear. The band's gonna come up and what they're gonna do is they're gonna play a song. And during the song, I encourage you, if you want to sing, or you can just be quiet and think. Check your heart. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says to count the cost. No one goes to war and doesn't count if they have enough troops to even fight it. You count the cost. And listen, what Jesus is calling you today is to lay down everything at his feet. Not some things, not most things, but everything. Romans 10, verse 9, says this, but if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord or King and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise. That's a truth in the scripture. And notice the scripture says Jesus is Lord. Not Jesus is my Lord, but Jesus is Lord because the reality is he is Lord whether you acknowledge him or not. And in fact, Philippians chapter 2 says, when Jesus comes back in glory, every single knee in this room will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Listen, every single one of you will one day declare Jesus is Lord. When you see his matchless glory, you're going to say, oh my, you are Lord. And you either do it now regularly with joy and wonder and amazement, or you'll do it on that day when you see him in terror and regret. Whether or not you do it now or then, it's up to you. Will you declare Jesus over Lord? Lord over your identity. Lord over your sin. Lord over your shame. Lord over your 
career choices and your relationships and your sexual desires and your identity and the way you view yourself, the way you treat people, Lord, over every single area of your life, Lord, over that hurt and unforgiveness you have for someone that you can't let go, Lord, over even that. And when you declare Jesus as Lord, every sin will be forgiven, every shame removed, and he will give you life eternal, life, light, and love. So we're going to sing the song, or maybe you just need to sit in it. I, I urge you not to get caught up in just doing things to distract what God, the Spirit of God may be doing in your heart. Maybe you need to just bow your head and just think about some of these words sung over you. But I want you to count the costs, and after that is done, I'm going to give you a chance to stand up in front of all your friends and declare Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord the top of your lungs. Jesus is Lord. And I'm going to do something I've never done at Hume because I grew up with a, bat, with a culture that did this all the time and abused it, but I think it's fitting tonight. One of the things that you do when you see a king is you bow. So what I'm going to ask you to do after the song, if you want to trust Jesus with all your life and put your hope and your dreams and everything into his hands, receive forgiveness of sins, is that you will stand up Jesus is Lord! And then you get on your knees before him, in front of all your friends, in front of all these people. So let's pray and think and sing, meditate and check your heart. darkest day in history they're on a cross they made for sinners for every curse his blood atoned one final breath and it was finished but not the end we could For the earth began to shake And the veil was torn What sacrifice was made As the heavens
want to stand and worship, you're more than welcome. There was a moment when the sky lit up, a flash of light breaking through. When all was lost, he caused eternity. Oh, well, the King of life was on the moon. asks a lot for us. He does. But he gives us so much more. Don't you see how beautiful he is? For every moment you think he's asking too much and he's a harsh taskmaster or anything like that, you see the beauty of this man who dies for sinners, who gives mercy to those who don't deserve it, who treats you far better than you could ever deserve. And the beautiful news is that in three days later he rose from the dead and when he rose from the dead, it showed that he can bring dead things to life. 
He has power over death and life, and he has power over your death and your life and your brokenness and your darkness. And every single time you feel like your nose is being rubbed back in the sin and the shame of your past and your present, you can look back at the resurrection because the resurrection is the stamp of God's approval saying, it is finished. The sacrifice is sufficient. It is enough. You are actually forgiven. So remember, we are trying to trust God to define what truth is. And he's telling it. It is true that if you are trusting him, you are hoping in him, you have forgiveness of sins, every single sin, and you have eternal life. And so what I want to do, just to make sure if you have made a commitment to Jesus this week, or maybe for the first time, or you realize you've never actually followed Jesus, I'm going to ask you in a moment to stand up and at the top of your lungs, who cares what people think, what your friends think, and don't you dare do it because you're friends. I did this altar call one time in Hume Lake, and I saw a video in the back and I saw some kids looking at others and were like, oh, I gotta stand. Don't you dare stand because you're friends because you're gonna stand alone when you see Jesus that day. It's about you and God. So you're gonna stand up, shout, Jesus is Lord, and I'm gonna ask you to run to this front. And this, historically, some churches call this the altar. And what you're saying is I'm sacrificing, I'm giving up my life, and I'm bowing my knee before the King of Kings and surrendering my life and receiving His, His purpose, His truth. So, you're going to stand up. Jesus is Lord. You run here and get on your knees, and then we're going to worship God, and I want to pray with you. So if that's you, now's the time. I never do this, but I feel like I need to say this. Is there anybody else who's holding back? I'm going to just do it one more time right now. Is anybody else? That's right. So I want to, let's pray, let's pray for these. So if, you, if you're a Christian, you could stretch out your hand to pray for these other campers. So Father, I thank you for these precious hearts. Thank you that you have mercy on sinners like us. Father, we're sorry for the times and the many ways that we reject you and we want to be our own God and King. And we thank you that you die for sinners like us. And thank you that you've promised that we put our trust in you that you will give us eternal life and you'll cleanse us of all of our sins. So right now I pray that a revelation of your mercy and your forgiveness and cleansing power would just wash over this group right now. All the sin and shame of their past, all the identities the evil one has planted over them would just be erased right now. Cleanse them, wash them, help them know they're now adopted. The good news is not just forgiveness, but you adopt us as your own children. You receive us into your family, and now we have a new dad, a good father. Would the fatherhood of God, the love of the Father, just wash over these students right now. Seal this work by your Holy Spirit so this is not a Hume Hive, but an eternal reality forever. Meet every one of them right now. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy and your power. 
And the band's going to lead us in a song, and we can just declare the song and music and worship Jesus. And then after that, Maddie is going to give us some instruction for tonight. Let's sing in response to our good God.